For the rest of us now, let's open our Bibles up to the book of Esther. We are going to be looking at chapter 7 today, although we are going to get a running start and look back at verse 14 of chapter 6 to begin our time together again in this, this great book of Esther. So now as you are able, let's stand together once more in honor of the word of the Lord. So we hear the word of the Lord now from the book of Esther, starting in chapter 6, verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. The king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your people. We thank you, Lord, that, that by your spirit, through your word, we hear the very words of God. Lord, we... we come to know you and we come to receive you. We, we are brought even from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from blindness into seeing, from deaf ears to hearing, from believing in lies to trusting in your truth. I pray, God, this morning that by your spirit, through your word, you would accomplish every one of your good purposes in us and among us. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you can be seated. So again, as we have been seeing, the Jewish people have a major problem on their hands, a major dilemma. The date has been set for their destruction. This, this Haman has gotten this king, Ahasuerus, to decree death for the Jews. 
Esther, the queen, has a plan to save her people, her being one of these Jews. She's going to appear before the king, risk her life, invite the king and Haman. Haman is the prime minister. He is the second in command over the whole Persian empire to invite them to a feast. And then as we saw at that first feast, she invites them to a second one to happen the next day, the next evening. Well, that next morning, Haman showed up very early at the palace, the time when he expected the king to still be asleep. And he had come for one reason, and that was to convince the king to let him kill Mordecai, to let him execute Mordecai. But it just so happens that the king hadn't been able to sleep. And it just so happened that in his desire to fall asleep, he did what some of us do, which is turn on a boring documentary. He said, let the chronicles of my kingdom be read to me. And and it just so happens that part of what they read is this event that had taken place five years earlier, where Mordecai had uncovered a plot to assassinate the king, had exposed it and saved the king's life. The king was just awake enough to catch that nothing was recorded there about what was done for this man, Mordecai, who saved his life. And he asked what was done for Mordecai and learned nothing had been done. And it just so happens that at that very precise moment, the king notices someone's out in the court. And he says, who's out there? They said, Haman's here. Haman had come to ask the king to let him kill the man the king had just learned about and read about. And the king was now concerned with honoring. And as Haman is ushered into the king's presence before Haman can even get the words out, the king tells him to go honor Mordecai in a most outlandish way. Haman had come up with the the idea of how to honor the man in whom the king delighted. And the king says, good, go do that for Mordecai. It culminates in, in Haman leading Mordecai through the streets of the city in a parade, declaring that the king is pleased to honor Mordecai. And Haman goes home in deep, deep depression. I just imagine him getting home and walking past this 75-foot structure he's built that he planned, to, he planned to end this parade in his honor with impaling Mordecai. And now he's had to parade Mordecai through the streets honoring him. I just imagine him walking by and looking at it and going, this would have been so great. It would have been so awesome to get to use this thing this morning. He is in despair. His wife and his friends and his advisors are there. They're probably there because... They were there for his culminating moment, this exciting moment of the execution of Mordecai. And they tell him, you've already begun to fall before Mordecai. That's where we're at in the story. But the Jews are still in this desperate dilemma, terrible dilemma. Destruction is coming for them. Death is coming for them. The date has been set. It's still some 11 months away. The truth is, as we look at the dilemma of the Jews and as we look at the story of Esther, it won't do for us, and we have tried not to do this, to just look back on it as some historical exercise or just some great story, and it is a great story. But we need to examine ourselves and our lives. And when we look at the destruction that is set for the Jews and the dilemma that the Jews are under It's easy for our minds to quickly turn to the fact that all human beings are facing a much greater dilemma than the Jews were in the day of Esther. 
than the Jews were in this Persian Empire under this edict of death. In the book of Esther, the Jews are under condemnation from the Persian Empire, the most powerful empire on earth. There is certainly nothing they can do to spare themselves from this. And yet what all of humanity faces is worse than that. All of humanity stands under a just and a holy and an eternal God condemned. Rightly condemned. As we, as we read in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so there it is. The starting point for every human being who has ever been born outside the Lord Jesus Christ, the starting point for all people is ungodly and unrighteous. We love our sin. We don't have to teach our babies how to sin. We have to teach them how not to. We don't teach them how to not bite other children. We teach them how not to bite other children. We don't teach them how to lie. We teach them how not to lie. We are born sinners. Paul says we suppress the truth about God because of our sin because sin is natural to us sin is comfortable for us sin comes easy to us to to borrow an expression from the pagan culture we're born this way we're born into it all people are born rebellious all people are born sinners all people are born treasonous to this one true king who rules over all things and God for his part is not neutral about that God cares about that. God is holy. God is angry at the unrighteousness of men and at the unrighteous. He is going to judge. Every single human being is born in this situation, an enemy of God. As we saw in 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 our study of the book of Romans Paul tells us it's not just that we are at war with God, it's that he's at war with us. It's not just that we've made him our enemy, it's that we are his enemy too. We are sinners by nature who love our sin and God hates it. So for our part, we try to excuse it. We try to justify our sin. We try to minimize our sin. We try to blame other people for our sin, but God is holy and God's not buying any of it. God can never ignore it. He can't just let it slide. He must judge. The penalty must be paid. And so this is the the condemnation that all people are born into. And friend, perhaps, let's just get this out of the way up front. Perhaps you're still living in that state. Maybe you're still living in that state of rebellion. You're living in sexual immorality. You're, You're living in perpetual dishonesty. You're disobedient to your parents. Maybe you're nursing bitterness. Maybe, maybe you have resentment that you won't let go. Perhaps months have passed. Maybe years have passed and you are keeping that offense alive in your heart. You will not lay it down. You also won't go have an adult conversation with whoever it is that you're harboring this bitterness and offense towards. What that does to you is turns you into a gossip. It turns you into a slanderer. It turns you into one who is discontent and ultimately one who sows division in the church. And God demands that you repent and you know it. You know it. 
Your conscience scalds you. Your conscience accuses you, but you will not change. In fact, you're getting better all the time at blocking that out. You don't stop the perversion. You don't stop the lying. You don't stop the bitterness. You love your sin. You make excuses for it. And I just need to say this to you in love, friend. If that is you, you are in far greater danger than you know. You are deceiving yourself. The, the, the Bible teaches, and we read in Romans, if, if this sin is not addressed, if this sin is not repented of, it won't just be our consciences making us feel bad at the end of all of this. It won't just be that we're anxious people or depressed people or discontent people. What it will be is that we are condemned people. Condemned forever. Just like the Jews in Esther. The date is set. The date is set for each one of us. For, for this judgment. That surely will come. The good news is that's not the, that's not the whole story. You're born into sin. You're born God's enemy. A date of judgment is coming. God must judge sin because he is holy. And the judgment is death. But the story doesn't end there. This this God of holiness, this thrice holy God. The one whose holiness pricks our conscience. The one whose, whose holiness accuses us in our own hearts. He does far more than just demand a moral reformation on our part. That he does more than just demand that we do the things we ought to do and not do the things we ought not do. Now we need to be clear, he does demand that. God does demand of us obedience. He claims the total allegiance over our hearts, over, over all of us. He, he demands that we forsake our sin. He demands that we renounce it and turn from it. He demands that we live lives of obedience and righteousness. But here's the thing. He doesn't do that from a great distance. He's not standing far off with his arms crossed, shaking his head at us. Waiting to see, are they going to live up to my standards or are they not going to live up to my standards? This, this holy God of infinite purity, this God who will not tolerate sin, this God who will surely judge is turned towards you in love. This is the whole story. This is the good news. This is the heart of the gospel. It's this, that, that you're in this condition as God's enemies under his condemnation and all of the initiative... And all of the work in getting you out of that condition is done by God. Oh, that's great news. That's incredible news. Uh, all the work, the one who even starts the process in, in overcoming this condemnation is accomplished by God himself. We don't even have the desire, as we saw in the book of Romans, to do it. We're content in our state of condemnation. We're content in our war against God. It's God who, who initiates. It's God who seeks us out. It's God who is not far from us. As we sing in that great hymn of the church, it's Jesus who paid it all. It's him who saves us. It's him who keeps us. So as we look at Esther chapter 7 and what goes on here, we're going to look at it through the lens of these gospel truths, really two doctrines. That, and if we'll embrace this, we'll see more clearly the glory of, of the gospel. 
as it pertains to our own lives. The first doctrine is this, the doctrine of identification. We see that in the first half of our passage today. Again, we see Haman having a rough day. Things have have taken quite a turn from him. He was on top of the mountain just last night. And now the bottom has fallen out. He's the number two man in the Persian Empire, the prime minister. He's been invited to parties with just the king and the queen. A great, great honor. He has set in motion this plot to kill all the Jews who he hates. He's now built a 75-foot impaling pole at his house. Specifically to kill Mordecai, who is the direct object of his hatred. Everything is going great. Until this morning. This morning when he woke up thinking he was going to be greatly honored by the king. Thinking he was going to get to execute Mordecai and then things got better because the king said, Haman, what should I do for the man who I desire to honor? And Haman's thinking, who could he be talking about except for me? And, and he comes up with this outlandish plan. Dress him in your clothes. Put him on your horse. Parade him through the streets. What a day. Haman at this moment is thinking, I'm going to have the greatest honor I've ever had in my life. The greatest honor any man could have. Really, anyone who sees it is going to know I'm the true power here in Persia. I manipulate this king. And then we're going to end it all with a, with a nice barbecue and impaling at my house. It's going to be perfect. Instead, he's humiliated. He has to parade Mordecai through town. The the rabbi's teaching on what happened when he paraded Mordecai through town is comical. They they tend to embellish the story quite a bit when it comes to Esther. They say that as Haman is parading Mordecai through the town saying, this is who the king desires to honor. His daughter looks out from the balcony and sees this and she thinks Mordecai has been forced to honor my father. Oh, good. He's being, he's being made to look like a fool and my dad, the great man. And so she, she has an idea. I can make this even better. Runs back in her room and gets the chamber pot. Dumps it over the edge of the balcony onto the head of the man leading the horse. Who she thinks is Mordecai. And then Haman looks up at his daughter after she's just doused him with the chamber pot. And she sees that it's her father and in her... In her panic and horror, she falls from the balcony and dies. That for sure didn't happen, but it is fun to read the things that the Jewish rabbis claim happened in this story. But the truth is, when Haman gets home from leading Mordecai through the streets, things really do get worse and worse and worse for him. His lovely wife, Zeresh, just immediately encourages him by saying, you are going to fall. That's what's coming your way. Then verse 14 just says, while they're talking to him, while they're telling him this, you've begun to fall and you are going to fall. While they're yet talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. All his plans are coming undone in a a most disturbing manner. Everything is spiraling out of control. Mid-sentence, they come and they just whisk him away and, and take him off to this feast. The, the way that, that the language is used here is meant to, to give us that feeling of things are just happening one after another after another, stacking on top of each other. Things are going to move very quickly for Haman here. He's being swept along. He's being overtaken by things that are completely out of his control. 
Verse 1 of chapter 7 says, the king, and, uh, the king and Haman went to the feast with Queen Esther. They're drinking wine at the feast. And then the king again says to Esther, what's your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What's your request? Even in the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So the wine's flowing again, just as the evening before at the feast, everybody's feeling good. And as the king is feeling good again, he says to his wife, what's your request? Haman at this moment might be having just one brief moment of of peace in his mind. Surely if he is, it's the last one in his life. But he might start, the wheels might start turning and he's thinking, at least the Jews are going to die. I've been humiliated, yes. But at least my plan is still going forward. And here I am with the king and the queen. Then the king asked that question of Esther again. It's the third time he's asked her, what's your wish? It's the third time he's told her, I'll do whatever it is that you're about to ask me. Verse 3 says, Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So, so Esther says, what I want from you is just to spare my life. To spare my people's life. We've been sold. I and my people have been sold. She makes reference to this amount of money. That if you remember a number of weeks back. That Haman promised to pay the king a very large sum of money. To let him kill all all of the Jews. Then Esther says this thing for Haman's benefit. We've been sold to be destroyed. To be killed. And to be annihilated. It's the exact language from the edict that Haman wrote in the name of the king and sent out across the entire empire. Now, King Ahasuerus, who throughout this entire story is completely oblivious, an entirely weak and foolish man, he doesn't make the connection. He doesn't understand what she's talking about. She's saying this for Haman's benefit. And Haman, upon hearing those words, we have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Haman feels like he's been punched in the gut, I'm sure. Haman's thinking, those are my words. I was particularly proud of that little turn of phrase. And now here it is. Oh, no. If this was a comedy movie, this is when Haman spits the wine out of his mouth that he had in his, in his mouth. He, he, he is shocked. And he realizes now, perhaps probably for the first time, the queen is Jewish. These people that I've condemned... So Haman's bad day has gotten much, much worse. He now realizes he's in trouble. And then Esther appeals to the king's self-interest. If we we were just sold into slavery, I wouldn't even say anything. I'm concerned, king, for you. All the revenue you're going to lose if they kill us. She knows exactly how to push this king's buttons. This king who only cares about his wealth and his power and his status. Esther has become a master politician In her time in the palace. She is cunning. She is now being straightforward for the very first time. And saying spare our lives. King Ahasuerus then verse 5 said to Queen Esther. Who is he? Where is he? Who who dared to do this? So now the king's angry. My own queen and her people have been sold to be killed. Who could possibly have done this? Well you did. 
But he doesn't know that. He probably didn't read the edict. He probably didn't know what entire, what entire people group he had signed the death warrant on. So now that he's angry, it's time for Esther to, to just out with it. This is the moment. And, and all this tension that's been building up, it just floods out of her in raw emotion. Esther says in verse 6, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. It's a masterful plan on the part of Esther, the way she has done this entire thing. It's also an incredibly risky move, even in this moment, as the king is furious. Esther has now, in this moment, not only revealed her long overdue request. The king has now three times had to tell her, like, what is it? What do you want? She's also revealed her long-hidden identity. She hasn't been honest with him about who she is. She's also directly accused the prime minister. She's banking on the king to believe her. It's a great risk she is taking. She has revealed herself to Haman. Haman is her mortal enemy, and she has known that, but Haman has not known that. And now Haman knows that. And she's revealed herself fully to this king, who she hasn't told in five years who she really is. Esther, though, in this moment is identifying with this people who are under a death sentence in order to secure their deliverance. She is taking a risk. Her fate is now their fate. Whatever happens to them is going to happen to her. Esther stands now in this moment, as she has revealed herself, condemned just like all the rest of the Jews, according to this irrevocable royal edict. So now for Esther to be saved, she needs to become the savior of her people. The good news is this. There's not a direct carryover, a direct one-to-one comparison of Esther and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are far, far different. Esther's a shadow. A dim shadow of the one true and better Savior. Esther identifies with her people in order to secure salvation for them. The law of the king has gone out for their destruction She stands in solidarity with them. She is identified with them. She becomes one of them, puts herself under the same sentence that they are under in order to secure their redemption. She is taking a risk in doing all of this. The gospel, though, friends, is so much better. Esther secures temporary deliverance. From the unjust tyranny of an earthly king, albeit a very powerful one. But the Lord Jesus Christ secures eternal salvation from the just and holy judgment of Almighty God. Esther stands with her people and intercedes on their behalf. But Jesus stands with his people to die on their behalf. Esther must persuade the king to spare the Jews, but in Jesus, the God whose law condemns us, himself pays our penalty and secures our pardon. Esther is taking a risk. Jesus is not taking a risk. Esther hopes it's going to work out. Jesus knows he is accomplishing his purposes. Esther is hoping to make life and salvation possible. Jesus accomplishes 
salvation. This is the doctrine of identification. God in Christ identifying with sinners. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is it. God, God identifying in Christ with sinners. Jesus taking on human flesh to be tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ, our substitute, bearing our condemnation on the cross. And it works the other way. So he, he's so identified with him such that we are identified in him. We are in Christ, hidden in him. So that when the holy God, the judge of all things, looks at us, he sees only the righteousness of his son and not our own spotty track record. That is glorious news. There's another doctrine that goes with this illustrated here in Esther 7. We see it in verses 7 through 10, and that is the doctrine of propitiation. Verse 7, the king arose in his wrath, From the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. We saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So the king, like a petulant child, when things get difficult and he gets mad, storms off. He goes into the garden. He walks out into the the garden. And King Ahasuerus is in a difficult position, certainly. He has publicly now three times told Esther, whatever it is you're going to ask me, the answer is yes. That's not a great policy, by the way. I don't know what it is, but yes. That's basically what he did with Haman. I don't know who the people are. You want to kill all of them, but yes. That that dollar amount you offered me looks pretty good. So he says, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. And now she accuses his prime minister. And she asked the king to reverse his edict, this irrevocable edict that's gone out through the whole empire. He is going to be humiliated one way or the other. There's no getting around it. How's he going to deal with this and not look bad? He either has to say no to his wife, who he's already said yes to three times, and has now identified the prime minister. So what does it mean to say no to Esther now? Well, she doesn't get to just keep going on with life as usual. Or he believes what she says about Haman. And then how is he going to deal with Haman and not look bad? Haman's the one that signed the edict. How is he going to, the king say, okay, I'll reverse it. He's in a real predicament, but Haman is about to help him out as the story goes. Haman stayed behind, it says, to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Now here's what we know of Persian history. This, this king, Ahasuerus, again, that's his throne name. We know him historically as Xerxes. And we know from history that in Xerxes' kingdom, no man is allowed to be alone with a member of Xerxes' harem. And as you remember from the story of Esther, that's a large group of people, maybe a thousand women. And even if the king is there, no one was allowed within seven steps of one of the king's royal concubines. The punishment was death. No man gets anywhere near any of my women. That's Xerxes' rule. Haman, though, knows he's in trouble. He knows he's in a desperate situation. He can't follow the king outside because he has seen in the king's face that the king believes her, that he is in trouble. 
He can't run away. Running away will look like an admission of guilt. And where's he going to go? So he stays to beg for his life from the one person. This one person who now herself is condemned. This one person is who he's going to rely on. Hope, throw himself on our mercy that she will save his life. Well, as things stand, she can't save his life. She now has 11 months to live. This decree has gone out and she's just outed herself as part of this, this people, these Jews. Verse 8, but again, as this story goes, everything just stacks up perfectly on top of each other. Verse 8, the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So, so here's Haman, the prime minister of the greatest empire in the world. He's so distraught, he's throwing himself on the mercy of Esther. He physically throws himself onto the couch that she's sitting on. And it's right at that exact moment as he does that, the king Ahasuerus comes back into the room. And all of a sudden, the king's embarrassing problem is completely solved for him. He's assaulting my wife. Well, that's it. Problem solved. Goes on in verse 8. The king said, will you even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Now, did the king really think that Haman was falling on the couch to assault Esther? I think not. But here is the solution to his problem. He can now execute Haman. He can now save the queen and not look bad and not be publicly embarrassed. And so they immediately, upon his entrance into the room and his proclamation, they put the bag over Haman's head. In other words, he's getting executed. Then one of the eunuchs in the room has an idea. Verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. The king said, hang him on that. So the king comes in. He says, Haman, you're even assaulting my queen right here in my house. They put a bag over Haman's head. And one of the eunuchs, Harbona, says, look out the window. You see that tall structure? The tallest thing in town? That's a, that's a gallows that, that Haman had built last night at his house. And he built it for Mordecai. That, that Mordecai that saved your life. He built it for him. He was going to impale him on it this morning. And the king says, well, perfect. Hang him on it. Look at the end of verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. The wrath of the king abated. It's that old expression to be hoist on your own petard. That's this situation right here with Haman. This glorious towering structure that he built. Haman's executed. The wrath of the king is abated. More than that, with the the death of Haman, the law has been satisfied. The demands of justice have been met. As long as Haman was alive, King Ahasuerus could not save face. There was no way around it. He couldn't fulfill Esther's request without embarrassment. He couldn't say no to Esther without embarrassment because he had already said yes three times. As long as Haman lived, the offense against the king remained. You have been manipulated. As long as Haman lived, the Jewish people faced sure death. But when Haman died, the king's wrath abated. 
The biblical word for this is propitiation. Propitiation is the satisfaction of wrath, particularly by the means of sacrifice. Haman's death propitiated the wrath of the king. This this doctrine, propitiation, is right at the heart of the gospel. It's central doctrine. As we said earlier, the Lord Jesus identifies with his people. He stood with us under our sentence of death in order to deliver us. But the question remains, how exactly did he do that? How did his act of identification obtain our rescue? And the answer is propitiation. In the book of Esther, it's Haman that dies. The enemy of God's people, the, the opponent of the cause and covenant of God who dies. In the gospel, it's not the enemy who dies. We are the enemy. We are all Haman, rebels against God by nature and by choice. Under the wrath of a just king. And so in the gospel, who is it that dies to satisfy the wrath of that king? Well, it's not the enemy. It's not the object of wrath. It's the, the one who dies to satisfy wrath is the very one whose wrath is rightly kindled. It's God himself who pays the penalty. Who pays the price for our sin. In the gospel, the hero dies for the villain. Dies in his place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the love of God in its fullest demonstration. The one whose law condemns us takes on flesh and pays the penalty for us, bears the curse for us, dies as our substitutionary sacrifice. That's propitiation. The wrath of God was headed right for you, and Christ stepped in front of it. He took it all upon himself. He took the full cup of the wrath of God, and he drank every last drop. That's the gospel. Uh, unlike the story of Esther. In Esther, Haman is made to be the propitiatory scapegoat. The king's wrath abates after Haman is executed. The wonder of the gospel is that God in Christ has propitiated himself for us. Our debt of condemnation is paid in full. God's wrath towards us is appeased through his own sacrifice. So as we look at at this dilemma that all of mankind suffers under, that all people are born under the just and righteous condemnation of God, we remind ourselves that's exactly where the good news begins. That's where the gospel begins. The gospel message does not begin with God loves you very much and has a wonderful plan for your life. You are such a special little flower of creation that he would just do anything to have you. No, it's not the gospel message. The gospel message stands, starts with this news. Condemnation, guilt, rebellion, treason. The righteous wrath of God poured out on sin and on sinners who are his enemies. 
The gospel doesn't end there. When we, when we realize that what God has done for us, when we see the state that we were in, and we realize what God has done for us in his marvelous love, that God hates and condemns our sin, but that God in Christ has come all the way down to us, identifying with us, standing in solidarity with us, dying to satisfy the condemnation that our sins justly deserve. When we understand that, it changes everything. People who understand that don't live like they once lived. People who understand that don't live with discontentment. People who understand that surrender to this God. Because of the gospel, instead of loving our sin, we love God. That's the nature of Christian conversion. Loving sin and hating God becomes hating sin and loving God. When when the glory and grace of the gospel illuminates our natural darkness, that darkness we are born into, we are moved from loving sin and hating God to loving God. And because we love this God who is holy and who is righteous, we hate our sin and we fight to put it to death. Because of Jesus, this God who, who was for us condemning judge, from whom we once ran, makes himself a loving father, into whose arms we joyfully run, into whose very presence we can come with confidence and boldness. That's the nature of conversion. Because of the identification of Christ, because of the propitiation of Christ, or friend, are you still living in your treasonous rebellion? Do you actually love your sin and refuse to bow your knee to Christ? And I'll tell you this. If you are living in perpetual unrepentant sin that you will not lay down, the answer to that question is, you love your sin and refuse to bow your knee to Christ. Do you live with the sting of a condemning conscience, knowing you are living a life of rebellion, but you're finding day by day that it stings less and less? Now it's only those momentary times of deep guilt. You need to understand that if, if, if you are living that way, one day, unless you are reconciled to God, that that sting of condemning conscience will be replaced by an eternal condemnation from which there is no escape. But here's the truth. This is why the gospel is so beautiful. That doesn't need to be any of you. It need not be any one of us. God in Christ has made a way of reconciliation. Listen again. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we love God. Again, how are we born? We love sin. Not God. This is love, though. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has done everything to reconcile us to himself. To, to the one who sits knowing In this moment, I trust the Holy Spirit of God in his kindness is making it known in your heart and in your mind right now that that's you. You need to hear this. God has done everything to reconcile you to himself.
to solve your great dilemma, to free you from your condemnation once and for all. And the path to that is not you perfecting yourself. And the path to that is not you trying harder. The path to that is surrender. It's just to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to call on his name, to ask him to grant to you the gift of saving faith, to grant to you the gift of repentance. And if you will do that, he will have you. He has made the way for you. And if you feel conviction in your heart right now, here's what it means. He loves you. He loves you. And he's calling you to himself. Won't you come? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, as we look at this story, this this really horrifying story of this man who was so steeped in his rebellion and sin and animosity towards you that it led him to his own destruction. We pray, Lord, may that never be us. I pray for all who hear my voice, Lord. May it, may it not be that they would persist in unbelief. May it not be that they would persist in rebellion. Lord, I pray for those of us whom you have mercifully saved, that, that we would be motivated by, the, by your grace, by your kindness to us, to, to rescue us from exactly that kind of life and, and greater than earthly death, eternal condemnation. You have rescued us. Lord, I pray that this would motivate us to live for you with joy. Lord, to boldly proclaim this gospel, to be faithful ambassadors of this king and this kingdom, we pray. Lord, cause our obedience to grow, cause our worship to grow, cause our love to grow. Lord, may we be faithful and fruitful for your kingdom's sake. For the glory of your name, for the eternal joy of all your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.